If you have a Bible, because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open it to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to be reading verses 24 to chapter 2, verse 3. Okay, so Colossians 1, verses 24 to chapter 2, verse 3. If you don't have a Bible, there's a brown pew Bible right in front of you. And you can find Colossians 1 right there at the very back of the Bible in the New Testament. And I think on the bulletin it says the page number. Page number is... 833. Eight, oh, I'm sorry, I, does, I don't have it there. 833. Yeah, 833. Thank you. So here then the Word of God from Colossians chapter 1 beginning in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's affliction for his body. That is, the church. I have become its servant according to God's administration that was given to me for you to make God's message fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. Chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, for those in Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me in person. I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love, so that they may have all the riches of assured understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. All treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. Father, we thank you that you have given us your son, Jesus. All treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. He is the image of you, the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He's the creator. Everything was created through him. He's before all things and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He has first place in everything, preeminence over everyone and everything. All of your fullness, Father, dwells in him. And through his death on the cross, he has reconciled sinners and a cursed world back to you. And so we praise Jesus this morning. We want to know him. We want to hear him. We want to see him. We want to experience Him, that we might enjoy Him. And so, Father, through Your Holy Spirit and through Your Word, would You show us Jesus? And we pray that He would transform us from one degree of glory to the next as a church family. And we pray that You would shape our church family based on this text and on the person of Jesus, that our church might be set into a new trajectory of making disciples 
and spreading the gospel of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What are your dreams for First Southern Baptist Church in 2016? What are your dreams for this church this year? And what are your dreams for this church in the next five to ten years? I asked this question of the pastoral search committee um, when they interviewed me, what was it, last July, or uh, July, but a year and a half ago now, when they interviewed, interviewed me in the room over there, I asked them, what is your dream and hope and prayer for this church? And they all gave a similar answer. I don't know if, for those of you who are in the room, if you remember the answers given, but they all gave a similar answer. And it was basically, they wanted and were praying for a thriving, growing church that was full, that was evangelistic, that was missions-minded, that loved God, that loved one another, and that loved the lost. That's our desire for this church, isn't it? That's our dream for this church. You want, as members of this church, you want to be a healthy church that invades the gates of hell with the gospel of Jesus Christ so that more and more people know, enjoy, and trust in Jesus Christ that they might have eternal life. We want to be a fruitful church, an evangelistic church. We want to be a church planting and a church sending church. We want to raise our kids who are passionate for God's glory, that they become adults and lead their own families for the glory of God. That's what we want as, as church members. That's what we want as a church family. The problem is that the lost are increasing out there. Those who don't know Christ, those apart from Christ, are increasing as the population grows. They are increasing. They're living. They're getting married. They're having careers. They die. And we're not reaching many of them. That's the problem, that we're not reaching many of them. There are 13 million in Los Angeles and Orange County. 13 million residents. We're right in between. We are part of the gateway cities. Southeast Los Angeles County are the gateway cities from Orange County to Los Angeles to downtown LA and to LA. And so there are 13 million in LA and Orange County. 10 million in LA, 3 million in Orange County. Most of them have not been united to Jesus by saving faith. We have 1.3 million people in the gateway cities in southeast Los Angeles County. 351 households. 351,000 households, sorry. Left out three zeros there. 351,000 households in southeast LA County. We have 80,000 people in Bellflower alone. I had two pastors who came this week to, to my study to pray with me. And they said, you know, we're not in competition. And I said, you're right. There's 80,000 people in the city. If all of our churches were filled, if all of our gospel preaching churches had no seat left, we'd still have 75,000 or more people unable to, to sit in a church gathering to encounter Jesus. We have a lot of work to do. Many of the people in our city and in our region have not heard the gospel clearly to understand it in distinction from religion. Most people who have heard about Jesus still think what that means is be a good person to go to heaven, right? Even a lot of people in churches think that the message of Christianity is fix your life, do good, obey the Bible, and then God will like you. Without any cross, without any resurrection, without any repentance and saying, I'm not good enough. 
I'm a sinner and I need Jesus who died for my sins. So even though there's access for all 13 million in Orange County and L.A. County, they all have access to people who know the gospel. Most of them die misunderstanding the gospel and not even rejecting the true gospel because they never understood it. They're confused because Satan has confused them. It says in 2 Corinthians 4, he's blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Of this 13 million, there are 1.1 million, almost 1.2 million, who are evangelical. An evangelical is a gospel person. They might not be Baptist, they might be Presbyterian, they might be Methodist, but they believe in that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, on the authority of the Bible alone. 1.1 million, 1.2 million out of 13 million. That's not a lot. And even then, as you know, if you've been part of any of these evangelical churches, not even everyone in those churches understand the gospel. If we push it one step further to take it home here, and even on myself, our church has not had a non-Christian convert to Christianity professing faith in Jesus in the 14 months I've been here as a pastor. Now, that's as much a reflection on me more than anyone else, probably. But we just need to own where we're at. Fourteen months. And the problem with this is that Romans 3.10 says, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who does good. All have turned aside. All have become useless. There is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God. And the bad news of that, everyone knows we're all, most people, if they're honest, know that we're all sinners. But the bad news of the fact that we're all sinners is that the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23. Listen to Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. This is John talking about the final judgment in the end. Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on the throne. Earth and heaven had fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I saw, this is Revelation 20, verse 12. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up its dead and death and Hades gave up their dead and all were judged according to their works, to their lives. And if we're all sinners, you know what the verdict is going to be. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. That's a problem. Sinners condemned, judged for their own lives, not having Jesus Christ thrown into the lake of fire to be judged for their sins under God's wrath and anger and just judgment forever and ever and ever and ever. Your neighbors, your family members, your city, our region, our co-workers. This is a problem on the outside. But the problem's not just out there. The problem's in here. Doesn't this grieve our hearts? This, this reality? But if we think about it, aren't we... I mean, I don't know how you feel. I feel discouraged. I feel discouraged that um, 
You know, I mean, you might feel, what are we going to do as a church? Well, maybe we're so divided as a church that we can't make significant impact. Maybe that's how you feel. Maybe you don't feel that way. Some of you might. I don't feel that personally, but some of you might feel that discouragement. Others of us might feel fear. Fear of where is our church? Is our church really going to make a dent in this? Some of you might be fearing, does PG even know what he's doing? You know, um, is he going to lead us biblically or is he really going to be leading us on the Southern Baptist way? Or is he going to lead us in the wrong direction? Some of us feel frustrated. It's the pastor's fault. It's another church member's fault. It's this group's fault that we're not reaching the lost. I understand the frustration in wanting to be a faithful, fruitful, and effective church. I have a fear. I have fears as well. And you know what? Here's one of my fears. God doesn't promise that every local church is going to grow. Do you know that? God doesn't God God will build his church and the gates of hell will not stand, but not every local church will last. The church that planted this church, First Southern Baptist Church of Long Beach, planted us in 1949, March 13th, 1949, our church, 15 members constituted as a church family in 1949 here in Bellflower. That church that planted us just went out. They sold their building to Jehovah's Witnesses two or three years ago, and they're preaching a false gospel. There's no guarantee that we're going to last. So that's a fear of mine. So what do we do? Well, you know, just a little bit of my story. I was part of an ingrown, unhealthy church where I was saved. Now, there's a lot of things that were good about that church, and I praise God. I've learned so much from that church, more than any other church that church shaped me for the first, what, um, 19 years of my Christian life. But it was unhealthy in, in some significant ways. And um, in training for pastoral ministry, I started pastoring there for the first five years of my pastoral ministry. I wondered if I'd ever experience or be part of pastoring a healthy church. Then God sent me to Washington, D.C. He sent me there for six months, and I learned with Capitol Hill, with the Capitol Hill Baptist Church family, I learned what a healthy church looked like. I saw what a thriving church looked like. I learned what it looked like to pastor a healthy church. We, we, Francis and I jumped in. Key was born over there. Rock was the size of, of city at the time. And we were there just experiencing what it was like to be part of a healthy church. All the while we're studying, what does the Bible say about a church? We read books on what a healthy church is. We talked about pastoral ministry constantly. We read over 5,000 pages and discussed and wrote on them about what is a local church and how does it run from different perspectives and history and the Bible. And they pressed on my soul a pattern of what a church looks like. They showed me what a church looks like. And so we set off from there to plant a church in Los Angeles when we got back. And um, that church did reach out to lost people. In 2008, um, we planted that church, but due to a lack of resources in terms of leaders, um, in terms of not having leaders who were appointed yet, though we were on the cusp of that, finances, we had a lack of host homes in the area to, to, to house mission, and we lacked a facility. So um, that we, you know, we, we ended up, when God sent me here, we, we ended up um, closing that church. But we saw many members grow as gospelizers and disciple makers there. We saw the church give to missions. We saw some conversions from that community as we shared the gospel. We preached the gospel. We practiced meaningful and consistent church membership. We even excommunicated four 
members who were unrepentant in their sin, and three of them publicly repented since then and came back and started walking with the Lord again. We are on the cusp of appointing other non-staff pastor elders. And you know what? Today here at this church, I see God nurturing health and life. Do you see it? I see God nurturing health and life in this church here these past 14 months. Now, I'm sure he's been doing it before I got here. I just, I could only see what I've seen, right? I'm not saying he didn't do it before. You've seen it if you were here before me. But I've seen in these last 14 months, God nurturing health. He's actively transforming me and many of you in these past 14 months. I think God is actively working in our lives and he's adding members to our church. So where do we go from here? How do we penetrate the darkness? What's the vision? What are we doing? And how are we going to do it? Well, we want to be a church where everyone encounters Jesus. That's my prayer. That we would build up a church, that we would edify each other and build up a church where everyone encounters Jesus in everything we do as a church. Whether it's singing, or preaching, or conversations, or lunch, or potluck, or children's ministry, or prayer in the back, um, or whatever we do in small groups, Wednesday Bible studies, everyone encounters Jesus in everything. And that's what Colossians 1, 24 to chapter 2, 3 is about. So go look at Colossians 1, 24. I'm going to just, we'll probably spend 15 minutes on this passage, and then I want to just lay out the vision for our church before we are done this morning, okay? So this is sort of a vision setting Sunday. I want to show you where I see us going as a church, and I want to call you to go all in with us as we do this, okay? So first, let's see the plan. Paul certainly wanted to make Christ known. Paul certainly planted churches and saw conversions. So he gives us here an encouragement. He gives us three encouragements, really, in this text. Look at chapter 2, verse 1, or chapter 2, verse 2. Here's Paul's goal of this passage. I want their hearts, I want your hearts to be what? Encouraged or comforted. And join together in love. So he wants us, he wants your hearts to be encouraged and united in love. So that you may have all the riches of assured understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, Jesus Christ. That's Paul's goal. He wants to encourage your hearts. He wants to unite your hearts so that you enjoy Jesus more. That's the goal that Paul's after here. And so how does Paul do it? The argument of this passage is this. So just look up here. I'll, I'll summarize the passage and then we'll, we'll go through it in three steps. Paul says, I suffer for you. I suffer for the church. I serve the church by preaching to the church. And then I want you to be encouraged by my struggle. I struggle in suffering. I struggle in serving so that you would be encouraged and united through seeing my struggle. That's the, that's the, that's the text. That's the argument. Okay, so here are the three points this, this morning. Be encouraged that God sent others to suffer for you. Be encouraged that God has sent other Christians to suffer for you. Secondly, be encouraged that God has sent other Christians to serve you. And then third, be encouraged in unity so that we might enjoy Christ together. Okay? Be encouraged that God sent others to sacrifice for you. God sent others to serve you. And God is now calling us to be united in heart and encouraged in knowing and enjoying Jesus. Let's look at these one at a time. Number one, be encouraged that others, that God sent others to suffer for you. Look at verse 24, just one verse. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you 
And I'm completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's affliction for his body, that is the church. Paul sounds crazy here, right? This does not sound like 2015, uh, a, a resident, a Christian in Los Angeles. What does Paul rejoice in? Look at the verse. In what? Sufferings. Who talks like that? Praise the Lord, I'm suffering. This is awesome. What a joy to suffer. Paul sounds like he's from another galaxy, right? I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I fill up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Why does Paul rejoice in suffering? It's because he actually is from another world. His citizenship is in heaven. Philippians chapter 3. For him to live as Christ and to die is what? Gain. Suffering leads to glory. Jesus said, um, Blessed are you when all men revile you and mock you and say all kinds of evil things about you. Blessed are you, for great is your reward in heaven. So why is Paul rejoicing? Actually, Jesus told him, Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. So Paul is happy. He's celebrating suffering. He's rejoicing in suffering. Now, suffering has another purpose here. It's the second half of the verse. It says this, I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's affliction for his body. So Paul, in his suffering, is completing what is lacking in whose afflictions? In whose sufferings? Christ's. Okay, what does that mean? Where was Christ afflicted? On the what? On the cross. We all know that. And so what is Paul doing? He's filling up what is lacking in Christ's cross. That sounds really weird, right? That's jarring. What? Christ's cross is everything. It just In Colossians 1 verse 20, it says, Through him, he reconciled everything to himself, making peace through what? In Colossians 1 20. Through the blood of his cross, whether things in heaven or things on earth. Everything in the universe is reconciled to God through Christ's what? Cross, Right? Does that sound like it's lacking anything? If that suffering can unite the whole universe in him, that sounds like a pretty big deal, right? That sounds like it covers everything, right? The whole universe. And yet Paul says, I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's affliction. What is lacking in Christ's affliction? Here's what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that Jesus' death is insufficient to pay the penalty for every single sinner from every ethnic people group who would ever be united to him by faith in his death and resurrection. It doesn't mean his death wasn't enough. That's not what it means to save people. It doesn't mean that Paul can also add to dying for people's sins. Your suffering and my suffering for other people does not pay for their sins, right? Right. It does not. So what does it mean? Now, this passage really shaped me, actually, and made me want to be a church planner um, before and now a church revitalizer. John Piper summarizes it this way. What's missing in Christ's um, sufferings is the in-person presentation of his sufferings to the people for whom he died. What he means by that is the afflictions are lacking in the sense that they are not seen or known among the nations. They must be carried by ministers of the gospel. And those ministers of the gospel fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ by extending it to other people. Paul sees his own suffering as a, I'm continuing the quote, Paul sees his own suffering as a visible reenactment of the sufferings of Christ so that they will see Christ's love for them. 
Okay, this is based on Philippians 2.30. I don't want to take the time to, to justify it here too much. We could talk about it after. In Philippians 2.30, I'll just summarize. Paul says to the Philippians, you sent Epaphroditus to fill up what is lacking in your love for me. Now, what were, what were the Philippians lacking in their love for Paul while he was in prison? They had money for Paul. They had resources for Paul. You know what they lacked? Getting it to him. How did they get it to him? Through their messenger, Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus filled up what was lacking in their love for him because they had to, it needed to be delivered to them. In the same way, Paul's suffering is the delivery. He's the delivery man of Christ's suffering. Hey, Jesus died for you. How do I know he sacrificed himself for me? Look at my suffering for you. This is an expression and a reenactment of his suffering for you. I am an expression or an embodiment of Christ's suffering for you. You know, January, what's, today's January 10th. On January 8th, 1956, you know the story of Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, Peter Fleming, and Roger Udarian. They were regularly making contact with the Quarani Indians, trying to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were constantly making contact on the beach with the women. And then eventually, they, they, they were there again, and they were, they were having good good response from people and just befriending them. They were getting excited. We're actually going to be the first ones to share the gospel with this people group. Then one day, they went to another landing there on the beach, and five men with spears, eight-foot-long spears, came out there and speared them all to death, killed them. They all had guns, or some of them had guns. And you know what? They shot their guns in the air. They refused to defend themselves. And they died there, never sharing the gospel with these people. Well, a few months later, one of the five men, his sister moved in. Then some of their wives moved in. And they started living with this tribe. And then the men who speared these men became Christians and leaders of the church. Nate Saint had a son called Steve Saint. Just YouTube Steve Saint testimony. You can see his YouTube testimony. His, his, um, he calls the, the one who, the man who speared his dad, he calls him grandfather. And they're like, he's like a second dad to him. Steve Saint lost his dad as a young boy. And the man who killed his dad became sort of like a second dad to him and a spiritual leader to them because he got saved while Nate Saint was young. Now, did these five men make up for Jesus' insufficient suffering? No. What they did was they expressed it. And when the people saw that, that they didn't kill them, though they could have, and that the wives are now moving into the village and sharing this gospel of a Savior who died for them, they saw it. They got it. Someone suffered for me, showing me the suffering of Christ for me. And that's the point. You need to be encouraged, brothers and sisters, that other Christians suffer for you and they sacrifice for you. Now, we live in America. We don't have members of our church dying for each other physically. But we do have members who are sacrificing self-centeredness to serve you, don't we? Don't we have, don't we have other members here? Just look around. Don't you have other members in this church who have sacrificed their own preferences and comforts for you? Whether it's teaching and preparation time, whether it's administration, whether it's cleaning and setting up. Whether it's singing and practicing singing to lead us in singing. Whether it's conversations we have. Greeting each other even. Attending can be a, a sacrifice, can't it? Aren't there times where you just don't want to attend? You don't feel well or you don't feel like you should be there and you just feel you want to isolate yourself from everyone? And yet, you, and then, and yet that person comes here anyways? And haven't you been encouraged by the attendance of another person here? 
in this church? Have you been encouraged by greeting and hugging someone that you haven't seen for two or three weeks? Because you can't greet everyone on every Sunday, right? Haven't you been blessed and encouraged by the sacrifice that people have made to encourage you? We have people who give financially. People giving from their own monthly budget to support the gospel ministry of this church. People giving sacrificially and generously. You know what that displays? The sacrifice of Christ. Here's another one that I want to encourage you with. Some members of our church even sacrifice their own comfort by correcting you. That takes sacrifice. For someone to die to themselves and to their own comfort, to humbly rebuke and correct you in love and humility and patience, that is not something that pumps them up. They have to die to themselves to rebuke you. They have to sacrifice their own comfort to correct you. Have you been corrected by another member of this church? If so, you should thank them for sacrificing their own comfort to love you. Paul embodied Jesus. And what does he call the church in verse 24? The church is the body of who? Body of Christ, right? And so so Paul embodied Jesus. The church is supposed to embody who? Embody Jesus with our suffering. That's number one. Be encouraged by people sacrificing for you. Secondly, be encouraged by people serving you. God sent others to serve you. Now, in verse 25, Paul calls himself a servant. I'm going to get in trouble here because I just want to preach every line of this passage. I don't have time to, so let me just pull out the main thing. In verse 25, Paul's a servant. How does he serve the people? Look at verse 26. Or verse 25, how does he serve the people as the servant? What is he, what is he going to do? He's going to make God's message what? Fully known. How does Paul serve? By communicating God's message, the gospel. And then in verse 26, he calls it the mystery hidden for ages. God wanted to make known, verse 27, the glorious wealth of the mystery, which is what? End of verse 27, what's the mystery? Christ in you. Paul serves the church by making known this mystery of all mysteries, that God would not only send his son as the Messiah, but that the Messiah would actually live in you, dwell in you, and empower you to love God and enjoy people and serve them. That you would have the very power of God, you would have the very person of God living in you because of his death and resurrection. That's the mystery. That's the that's part of the gospel, right? That God would take a sinner and not condemn him, but save him and then live in him. And so what does Paul do? How does he serve? Verse 28, what does he do? What's the main thing Paul does in verse 28? What does he and his team do? They proclaim who? Him. And who's him? Christ, right? That's the main thing they do, okay? So how do you serve others? How do other people serve you? The main way other people have served you, besides sacrificing in their embodiment, besides embodying Jesus, is they have served you by explaining Jesus. They have proclaimed Jesus to you in conversations, in sermons, in giving you a book, in praying for you and praying biblical truth into your life. The way people have served you is by explaining Jesus to you proclaiming Christ and the Bible to you. And I'm not speaking primarily of formal teaching in Sunday school or Sunday sermons. I'm not here to puff myself up here. I'm trying to point out the fact that you have other Christians in this church who have explained Jesus to you in conversations, right? Who have edified you and encouraged you with biblical truth. That's gospelizing you. And you know why they did that? 
because they're serving you. They have served you. So be encouraged that God has sent other Christians to serve you, to gospelize you, to encourage you. And how does Paul do it in verse 28? We proclaim him warning. So that means correcting people and pointing out their sin. So we warn people and they do what else? Verse 28. We warn and we teach. So we explain the truth and how to live. We warn people of their sin and we warn them to repentance and we teach them what repentance looks like so that they would trust in Christ. And when we do this with all wisdom, you don't just take the Bible and beat people with it, right? You're wise in how you apply it to different people. When you do this with all wisdom, what's Paul's purpose? Why does he do it? So that what? Verse 28. Why does he gospelize and proclaim Christ warning and teaching? So that... Everyone might be what? Mature in Christ or perfect. Do you want fellow Christians to be mature? Do you want them loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving their neighbors as themselves and making disciples and loving the lost? How are you going to build up others in this church? By proclaiming who? Jesus. Give them Jesus. Give each other Jesus. Explain Jesus. And you're saying, well... PJ, you know more of the Bible than me. How could I explain Jesus to you? Brother, sister, just tell me what Jesus is teaching you lately. And you know what? You'll press Jesus onto my heart. Guaranteed. It's happened hundreds of times. It happens all the time. Just tell me what God is teaching you, and you'll be explaining Jesus to me. And you know what? You'll make me more mature. Explain what you're learning in the Bible. Proclaim Jesus. Explain Jesus. So, so people have embodied Jesus to you in their suffering People have and their sacrifice. People have explained Jesus to you in their service. So what's the result? What should we do? Be what? Verse 2, be encouraged in our hearts. Be encouraged in unity. Paul says in verse 2, he wants you to know the struggle they have. And that's what I'm trying to tell you right now. Do you know that people struggle to serve you and people struggle to sacrifice for you in this church? I'm speaking of general members. I'm not talking about leaders. I'm not talking about staff, though they do serve as well. I'm talking about regular members who are faithfully serving you by explaining Christ to you and sacrificing for you, embodying Christ to you. Are you encouraged by that? That's what a church does. So Paul says in verse two, chapter 2, verse 2, be encouraged in unity. And when you're encouraged in unity, what are you going to know? Who are you going to know in verse 2? You'll have the riches of an assured understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, which is who? Christ. In other words, it all comes back to who? Jesus. When you are united, who do you enjoy? Jesus. Who do we enjoy together? Jesus. And that's why, so, so it ends with joy. But it also began with joy because Paul did what with his sufferings? Rejoiced. Joy in Jesus pushes you to sacrifice. Joy in Jesus pushes you to serve. Joy in Jesus pushes you to embody and explain Jesus. And when you do that, people are united in Jesus. And guess what they do? They enjoy Jesus. And when they enjoy Jesus, what does that do to them? It pushes them to serve and sacrifice, right? And that's what a church does. A church experiences and encounters Jesus. That's what we do. Everyone encountering Jesus. How do you encounter Jesus? By people embodying Jesus to you by people explaining Jesus to you, by people enjoying Jesus with you. And when they do that, what does that do to you? That empowers you to be one who explains Jesus. That empowers you to be somebody who embodies Jesus. That empowers you to be part of a body, a corporate body, that altogether embodies Jesus. We want people in L.A. County to encounter Jesus. 
Well, then we need to be a church where everyone encounters Jesus in everything. That's the vision. That's what we need to be as a church family. Everyone. We need Jesus to meet us. We need him to change us. We need him to lead us. Only he can lead our church. Only he can shepherd us, shepherd us ultimately. Only he can change us. And we need everyone being changed. Everyone growing and everyone working together to make Jesus known. We will meet him here every time we come on Sundays. Jesus will be explained. He will be embodied. He will be enjoyed in this church. We'll hear God's word preached. We'll receive Jesus' ministry to us through other people. We'll enjoy him so that it moves us. We will encounter Jesus directly and we'll encounter him through other people. And when we do that, it will, it will empower us to do the same. We want every member in the game. Church ministry is not a spectator sport. We don't have you on the stands and you watch some key members helping people encounter Jesus. That's not what Paul does. Everyone encounters Jesus. And every Christian is used by Christ so that others would encounter Jesus. Every member in the game, every member a disciple maker, every member a gospelizer. That's where we want to go. That's where we must go. We must make disciples. We must train them. We must send them out as disciple makers. We must raise up church leaders. We must plant and revitalize churches with our people. We must be a general influence and encouragement to the Los Angeles Southern Baptist Association and the Gospel Coalition LA and other churches that we have influence in personally or corporately here in Los Angeles and in Orange County. Why us? Why us? Well, who are we? We are the church of Jesus Christ. We are the body of Christ. We are the family of God. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God has placed us here in Bellflower. He has not let this church go out like First Southern Baptist Church of Long Beach. Why are we still here? Because God has a purpose for us. God has a mission for us to accomplish. Jesus died to make us new. Jesus placed us here. He's given us a facility as a hub for a gospel movement. He's given us leadership in place. He's even given us a leadership place in the association among the 175 Los Angeles Southern Baptist churches. He's given me a spot on the Gospel Coalition Los Angeles regional chapter. It has to be us among other churches making Christ known in L.A. Why now? Well, the 13 million people are not going to wait. They're going to keep aging. They're going to keep growing. They're going to keep moving towards death. Their sin and idolatry will not weaken. It will only grow stronger. We don't know how long we have left on earth, right? How many years do we have left on earth? We don't know. I could die tonight. We don't know how much longer we have. All we have is this moment, this lifetime, and then we're gone to heaven to collect and enjoy Jesus as our reward forever and ever and ever. So we need to do this. We need to do it now. And so here's the call to action. Here's what God wants you to do. If you're not a Christian, he wants you to convert. If you're not a member of a church, he wants you to commit to a church. If you're a member of a church, he wants you to grow in Christ. And if you are growing in Christ, he wants you to go and make disciples. So convert, commit, grow, and go. Convert to Jesus if you're not a Christian. If you're not a Christian, good news for you this morning. Jesus died for your sins. We're all sinners. We're all condemned to hell in guilt. But here's great news. The, the best news you're going to hear this morning. If you forget everything I said, non-Christian friend, please listen for the next 30 seconds. God sent Jesus to take on your guilt and your sin on the cross. He was condemned for you. 
And he was raised from the dead on the third day to reconcile you and give you a right relationship with God so that God would live in you and empower you and change you to enjoy him forever if you will repent from your sins and trust in Jesus this morning or before you die. But you don't know if you have tomorrow, so do it this morning. Trust in Jesus and turn from your sins. Convert to Christianity. Convert to Christ. Convert is a dirty word in our culture because it means you have to admit you're wrong. Well, guess what? We're sinners and we're wrong. And we need Jesus. So I, if, I, if I wasn't a Christian, I would happily right now and happily convert again if I could. We only convert once. But if I could do it over again, I would right now because Jesus is that important and he's, he's been that good. So convert if you're not a Christian. If you are a Christian attending a church, whether you're visiting this church or another church, commit to a church. It doesn't have to be this church. Commit to a church. Let them know you're committed to them. And let them know that let them let you know that they're committed to you. Let it be a mutual understanding of commitment. And when you have that mutual understanding of commitment, go all in with that church family. Now, we have a visitors lunch here today and we have it once a month. Please come to a visitor's lunch and, and hear, well, you're hearing it this morning, but the vision and mission of the church. And then uh, have lunch on us and ask questions about the church and, and how we can help you grow as a Christian and be a disciple maker. So commit to a church and consider do the considering membership class. You don't have to join our church if you do the considering membership class. You just consider what it means to be part of a church. We're going to do a, we're going to do a sermon series on the church later in February, March. So even then... Come back for that and listen to what a church is. Okay, so convert, commit. What if we're saying, PJ, I'm already a church member. Most of us are church members. What about us? Well, grow. So if you're not a Christian, convert to Christ. If you're not, a, if you're not committed to a church, commit to his family. If you're committed to his family, grow in Christ. And here's how I want to suggest you grow. Be a plus one church member. I've said this before. Do you remember that? A plus one church member. So everyone is generally coming to the Sunday morning gathering. This is the main meeting of our church. But be a plus one church member where you go to the Sunday morning gathering plus one other thing. Wednesday night, Wednesday morning, Sunday night, Sunday school. That would be the easiest because it's nine o'clock and you just knock it all out in one. But the point is not just to knock it all out and say, yeah, I checked it off. I'm a plus one member. Here's what I want you. Here's why I want you to be a plus one member. Be a plus one member because those are the ones who develop the deeper friendships not that you can't develop a friendship. I'm, I love all of you, and I'll deepen my friendship as much as I can with all of you. But the ones you see more regularly, you have deeper friendships with. That's just natural. You deepen a friendship. You deepen talking about Jesus, explaining and embodying Jesus to each other, calling each other to repentance, pointing out sin, and talking about faith, and edifying each other. There are less plus ones, like Monday morning breakfast. You can go to that. Sunday, we're going to do once a month. Sunday, bring your own lunch on the fourth Sunday of the month. Uh, fourth Sunday of the month, upstairs where we eat together and just have a meal together to deepen friendship and encounter Jesus together. Those who are plus one members probably are ten times more likely to have deeper spiritual friendships and conversations. It's a beautiful thing on Sunday nights. I love this. And I tell my wife all the time. She'll always text me after a Sunday night um, meeting here. Where are you? And I'm like, I'm here at church. She's like, how long has it been? How long has it ended? Ended 45 minutes ago. What are you doing there? Everyone is still talking. It's the sweetest thing. It's my favorite. It's one of my, it's my favorite informal part of the church time is on a Sunday night after our prayer time, 
we just linger and talk. And no one has to stay. We just talk, we laugh, we joke, and then we talk about Christ, we edify each other. You know, you know how that happens? When it's the same people seeing each other week after week after week, you develop a friendship. And it goes deep. And it goes wide. And it edifies you. And you get more of Jesus. Be a plus one member. Grow in Christ. Don't be a Sunday morning only attend, uh, member of the church. I plead with you. I'm, again, I'm not going to judge you. Don't look down when I see you at the door, like frown. I'm not frowning on any of you. I thank God for every one of you. And if you're only going to be a Sunday morning attender for now, you know, I'll keep praying for you and encouraging you. But don't be offended by it. I'm just trying. I want your good. Okay? And then, so that's growing in Christ. And then go with Christ. Okay, and this is more, more mature members. Remember in, in verse 28, he preaches Christ so that everyone would be mature or, com- or complete. What does a mature member do? He doesn't only receive, he also gives, right? He feeds, he feeds, he gives. And so mature members go as disciple makers. So here's a very specific way I want to challenge you. And I only made 30 copies of these. Because I wanted, I was thinking, should I put this in the bulletin? I said, no, I'm not going to put it in the bulletin. I'm going to put it at the back table, and I'm going to make you follow the Holy Spirit's lead where you actually get up and grab the paper. I have 30 copies of what is called Life Transformation Groups. It's just basically a guide. This is from Austin Stone Community Church. It's a basic guide of if you were to meet with another Christian or two Christians to read the Bible and pray with them, what could that look like? Spending an hour with them. How can you share life and share Jesus and disciple each other for an hour once a week or once every other week? Grab this paper in the back. I'm talking to the mature members here, and I hope all of you want to be mature members. Those who want to be mature disciple makers, grab this paper in the back and, and read the Bible. You don't have to follow this exactly, but use it as a guide. Meet up with other Christians. I have other members of this church who have asked me, please send someone to disciple me. We have members here who want to be discipled. Do you want to actually meet with them and disciple them? If you're mature in Christ, you're not just about receiving, you're about giving. You want to explain Christ. You want to embody Christ. So go do it so that others might enjoy Christ and encounter Jesus. If we do this, we will be a church where everyone encounters Jesus. If we're converting and committing and growing and going, we will be a church where everyone encounters Jesus in everything. We will thrive and we will grow by the Spirit's power. We will make disciples. We will baptize new converts. We'll take in new members. We'll nurture new members into disciple makers and gospelizers. We'll raise up pastor elders and deacons. We'll raise up Sunday school teachers and missionaries. We'll establish this church as a healthy church. And once this church is established, we will be blessing other churches. We'll influence other churches. We will plant other churches. And we will help others see what God is doing here. If we refuse to encounter Jesus, we will be a declining or plateaued church that will neither exist, well, that will either cease to exist or just keep existing for itself. Maybe Christ will snuff us out like he does in Revelation to some of the churches that are not good witnesses. I'm not saying that's the direction we're in. We're not. But brothers and sisters, we need to encounter Jesus. We need you to convert to Christ if you're not a Christian. We need you to commit to a church if you're not committed. We need you to grow in Christ as a plus one member if you are a member. And we need you to go with Christ. As he said, I'm with you always as you make disciples. We need you to go with Christ in discipling other people in this church and evangelizing the lost. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we do not have to live lives of 
discouragement and feeling that we are disappointing in our kingdom outreach. Lord, we, we love you because you first loved us. You demonstrated your love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then you put in our hearts your love from heaven into our hearts that we might love you and love others. And so, Father, that's why we want this because you gave us this burden. You gave us your word. You gave us this mission. You gave us this region to make you known that others would encounter you. And so, Father, we pray that everyone, that we would be a church striving where everyone encounters Jesus in everything. And we want everyone, all 13 million L.A. County and Orange County residents, to encounter Jesus and hear Jesus explained and see him embodied and enjoyed that they might have a chance to repent from their sins and trust in Jesus and have life everlasting. Father, use us. We don't know what you're going to do this year at our church. We don't know what you're going to do the next five years. We know what we want. We know what we're praying for. We know what you command. So help us to walk in your ways and lean on your strength because apart from your Holy Spirit, these are just words and human striving. But we don't want it to be just that. We want it to be your words and we want it to be our striving as an outworking of your work in us and through us. So use us, Lord. We dedicate our church to you afresh today to be a church where everyone encounters Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.